Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I always think that Remembrance Day is arguably the most important day in the calendar. Why? Because, of course, we honor the sacrifices of current and past members of the armed forces. Uh, they protect our way of life and should be top of mind. And I'll give you more on that in a moment. But also tell you, we've got a terrific show planned for you. You are absolutely going to love Jim Thorne, Chief Market Strategist for uh, Wellington Altus Private Wealth. I've also got Brad Newell, one of the big success stories when you're talking entrepreneurs, but how he's parlayed that into a huge benefit for all of us in our communities. As I say, more on that coming. Plus, Ozzy Jurek, one of the things that's bothered me over the last while is how we continue to see our private property rights eroded by government. And there's barely a peep as if that's the norm, as if government should be able to tell us everything about our housing. I'll get more into that in a minute. But first, back to Remembrance Day. You know, uh, when I say that our current and past members of the armed forces protect our way of life, well, there's nothing that defines our way of life better than the protection of our freedoms. But many of those fundamental freedoms, and I think led by free speech, are under attack. I think that's what makes this Remembrance Day so different from the past, because I can tell you, like 20 years ago, we weren't talking about the latest government attempt to censor us, but we are now. And over the last decade, Rights like free speech and the right to a fair trial, where the accused is innocent until proven guilty, have come under increasing attack. Now, at the risk of being glib, I find that many in the, they're self-describing themselves as the woke, so the woke crowd clearly don't support free speech or the presumption of innocence, especially when it comes to the Me Too movement. And that also, this whole issue reflects a major divide in the country. The divide between those that sided with the security state, especially during COVID, and those defending individual rights. You know, Remembrance Day ceremonies feature the predictable lip service from politicians and others talking about the sacrifice of our veterans and members of the armed forces in defense of our rights. But come on, it rings so hollow these days when at the same time they're pushing for curtailment of those rights. I mean, the assault on free speech has been gaining momentum, well, it's for a long time. Gosh, I remember going back like a dozen years, and I can't recall any politician speaking out when students on university campuses successfully pressured the university administration to cancel speakers like Christy Blatchford or Condoleezza Rice, or more recently when professors are sanctioned because they challenged some aspect of the progressive dogma. I can't think of a cabinet minister or provincial premier who unequivocally stood up on the attacks on free speech at public libraries. I mean, it's just as troubling, though, to see numerous polls showing that the majority of university students support restrictions on speech, speech that they deem uh, harmful or incorrect or, in the prime minister's words, unacceptable. There's virtually no reaction when you hear from students like Ryerson's Jonathan Bradley when he publicly warned Canadian universities have become places where ideological conformity is expected and diversity of thought seen unacceptable. Come on, recently there was very little pushback and none from political leaders when the Twitter files revealed the cooperation of the FBI, White House, and social media giants to squash views, even from experts that challenged the government's COVID narrative. And by the way, some of those challenges, well, many of them turned out that were branded to be misinformation, now we know to be true. Hey, what about this? Recently, White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy stated she wants to censor content that deals with the cost of a force-fed green energy transition. 
In July 29, 221, Cabinet issued a technical paper, discussion paper, that proposed to appoint a chief censor called the Digital Safety Commissioner. Well, we didn't go through with it yet, but the UK and the EU have done something similar already through. Come on, free speech is the foundation of all other freedoms, along with the right of innocence before proven guilty. I'm going to add just one more. Just forgive me for this. I'm going to throw this out there. But let's not overlook things like the frightening judicial overreach when it comes to Dr. Jordan Peterson, who was disciplined by the Ontario College of Clinical Psychologists. Why? Because a small number of people complained, none by current or former patients, just for some social media comments that had nothing to do with clinical psychology. I mean, there are so many aspects in the battle between individual rights versus the state, and we don't have time to go into them here. So I'm going to finish with just one quick one here, that people don't seem to appreciate the relationship between our standard of living and free speech. You know, as President Barack Obama stated in the commencement speech at uh, Howard University, free speech is critical for a well-functioning economy. George Mason University professor Adam Millsap, he summed up the relationship saying, as an economic leader, we rely on the free exchange of ideas and information for the serendipitous discoveries that increase our standard of living. I mean, Milton Friedman, classic. He says the free exchange of ideas is essential for innovation and economic progress. Look, you don't have to have an economics degree to understand the difference in the importance of freedom. I mean, you look at North and South Korea, that's all you have to do. You could look at Cuba versus Mexico, Cambodia versus Thailand. I mean, the list is a long one. But the evidence is overwhelming that politicians, academic, media commentators, teachers who support some degree of censorship are pushing toward a system that's proven inferior on every measure and quality of life. Lest we forget is the theme on Remembrance Day. And it's obvious that in many areas, we have. So I'm going to finish with a line from the famous poem in Flanders Field by Canadian John McRae. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not see sleep. Well, many have broken faith when it comes to our freedoms, like free speech, that our veterans fought and died for, and current members of the armed forces continue st to stand ready to defend. My question is, how long are we going to sit back before we join them in the battle that is clearly raging over our freedoms. You know, this is a business where getting it right means everything. You know, I consistently say that. So I look for analysts who've had not only great track records, but seem to have a finger on the pulse of what's been going on the last couple of years. James Thorne fits that bill directly. He's the chief market strategist for Wellington Altus. Jim, thanks for finding time for us. Uh, I always like to get the chance to pick your brain about what's, you know, what's next. And we're going to talk interest rates. We're going to talk the impact in the economy. What does it mean for individuals? And, you know, that's the bottom line for us. How can we help people? That's what you do at Wellington Wellington Altus. But let me start with this. Uh, in no particular order, really, but the thought that keeps coming to mind, we've got the Bank of Canada trying to, you know, sort of reduce, choke off whatever adjective we want, uh, you know, economic growth. But we've got, uh, you know, for inflation's sake, but we've got the central government, federal government doing stuff that actually pumps up inflation. And we've finally had Tiff Macklin kind of refer to that. He's not blunt, but he refers, wouldn't that be nice if we could sort of get on the same page? What's your take on that? Well, I think it's, it's it, maybe we live in interesting times. Yeah. I, I uh, look at you when you go on national TV and you basically say, if 
2% is sacrosanct for the Bank of Canada, then, then, then these central bankers need to speak up, whether it's uh, Tiff Macklin or whether it's Jay Powell. You've got, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, you've got um, policymakers in Washington and Ottawa have used the fog of the, of the COVID pandemic to uh, uh, implement a progressive left policy that I don't think anybody signed on for when they started doing these extreme monetary policies in the middle of March 2020. And so I think, you know, the the central banks, I think Jay Powell and Tiff Macklin are, are, are you know, are, I'm not going to use the term upset, but let, let's be frank, the, the, we started to come out of the COVID pandemic in 21 and they should have stopped all of these special programs then. And they went way too far. And, and so now we are, we are dealing with the brunt of that. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Jay Powell and Tiff Macklin were put in a very difficult position uh, by the policymakers and they're pushing back. Well, the other thing you've been saying for a while, as uh, I'm going back, uh, maybe the Outlook Conference a full year ago, it might have been two years ago too, saying, hey, look, don't look for interest rates to come down until this coming, you know, sort of March, April period. And you said that ages ago, when, you know, when people were saying, oh, they've got to lower the rates, you know, that kind of stuff. You said, no, it's not going to happen. They're going to keep increasing rates and they aren't going down earliest, as you said, the end of the first quarter. I'm just wondering where you're at with that now. Yes, I think Canada is going. So, so the real question is going to be: Is what do they do when Canada? When what does Tiff Macklin do when the economy goes into a recession and we're going into a recession? Yeah. And how do they respond to that? And and so I I think unfortunately Tiff Macklin has had to blindly follow the move of the Federal Reserve. They raised rates too much. Um, we are in an economy that is much more interest rate sensitive. We have our mortgages aren't 30 years. We are more dependent on the housing market um, and we have more personal debt to, to disposable income. So we're going to have a hard landing in Canada. Right. And I think we're going to have a soft landing in the United States. So I would expect Mr. Macklin to start really starting to think about it, re- reducing interest rates in, in January or February of this coming year. And I think then, Mike, I think we have a a, a two year period, let's say between 24 and the in late 25, where they bring rates down and we get sort of the echo of the covid situation, which we, is going to replicate what happened in after World War Two or World War One, where we get off the sugar high. Right. Fiscal policy does stop. Economic growth does really dramatically drop off. The effect of of high interest rates on the real estate market is felt and they start cutting rates and we pivot from inflation to uh, deflation, secular stagnation and growth fears, which is exactly what happened in the early 20s. And after World War II, everybody there, there, it was called the forgotten depression in the early 1920s when we came out of World War One and the, and the Spanish flu. So, um, I, but I want to, I want to just sort of amplify, I, you know, the question you have when I look at it in my mind is, I honestly, it's a pity, and that's why I use Shakespeare that there's something rotten in Canada. I honestly think that that Jay Powell and Tiff Macklin are smart guys, and and they know. If they had us in the room and we were talking with them like this and they wasn't political and they weren't ahead of these institutions, they would be agreeing with us. Right. They've got a political minefield to negotiate. So I'm of the view, Mike, 
that we really aren't going to know what the long-term ramifications of all this mess is until 26 or 27, right? But at the same point in time, I think we need to batten down the hatches and recognize the fact that we're going to have a significant economic slowdown. We're going back to deflation and people are going to be surprised at how rapid interest rates come down in 24 and into 25. See, that's where it's going to get interesting too, because I appreciate the interest rates go down uh, sovereign debt becomes a little less onerous on the interest side, but the other side, man, if we, you know, if we're going to have a significant, and, and again, sorry, I'm digressing, but I want everyone to hear you're making a distinction between the U.S. and Canada. We're talking Canada this moment, which is we'll have a more severe drop down. Well, you know, look at our debt situation across the board. Look at our government debt. Well, revenues are going to go down too. Then, yeah, I appreciate their interest expenses going down, but revenues are going to go down. I'm just saying it's not a very nice cocktail that we're looking at here. Right. And so and so the way we get up, like, so when I first met you, the, the question we always talk about, we've got this debt mess that we got to get out of. Even before COVID, we've got yep. this debt mess. And so the way you there's three ways you can get out of it. Right. And, and I'm going to just be general here. So let's let's just we can do the left way, which is tax rich, tax the rich and redistributing and redistrib- redistribute that that doesn't work. Yeah. We could do the extreme right way, which is trickle down economics, right? Which is give tax breaks to the ultra rich. That doesn't work. And the third way, what we hear a lot from, from newsletter writers is the Austrian way or the Austrian school way, which is let's just blow it up and burn mm-hmm. it down, right? And that's not going to work. And I, why I would say that to you, Mike, is if that was the case, they would have done that in 1997 with the long-term capital management crisis. Remember the Asian right, contagion? Sure. So then what, how do we get out of this basic question? And the, re, the way we get out of this is we grow. We grow with the private sector. And so what I would say to your, uh, to your viewers is all is not lost. And what I would say, if you're going to think about where you want to position yourself in this mess, and we've talked about this, look at Bitcoin. People are buying Bitcoin. Look at, we call it the Magnificent Seven. Look at these large technologies. Listen to what you said first time I ever met you. You said, and I steal your line all the time, Mike, and I don't give you credit for it. Every company has to be a technology company. That's where we are. So what we need to get into is if we bring rates down, economic growth goes down, and your 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 listeners should think about innovation, technology. If we're going to blow this up, then it's going to be the blockchain. It's going to be some variation of bitcoin and ethereum mm-hmm. uh if you want to go into gold that's fine but what i would say to you is the millennials will go into into bitcoin and look at and this is where i get a little bit more machiavellian is look at isn't it interesting when we first start talking about bitcoin and blockchain where it was a scam right yeah. well mike you and i are old enough to remember that's exactly the same pitch we heard about the internet in 1995 and 1994 yep. And once the establishment got a hold of it and grasped it, it became it became the go-to theme. Well, what do we have happening now? We have mass adoption of Bitcoin by Wall Street. Bay Street will follow. And we're in front of this thing called the halving cycle. So what I'm saying to you is, you know, when we talked about a little bit you know, about the new financial system, yes, we have the solution. Interest rates are going to come down. Where do you want to invest? I think, Mike, that this in Canada is going to look a lot like it did in the 1990s. And what happened was you had the you had the real estate bubble, 
You had John Crow come in. He raised rates. He wiped out. We had a real estate correction. But then real estate went sideways for a decade. Yeah. And here's the thing. Banks in Canada did okay. Why? Because it wasn't Scotia. It was it it became Scotia McLeod and Mm -hmm. and they embraced the capital markets. Dominion Securities was bought by Royal Bank. The banks need another income stream. The banks need another vehicle like the capital markets like they did in the 1990s. To, to basically, and I won't call the storm. Let's look at this glass half full. Real estate goes sideways for a decade. What's that going to be? It's going to be blockchain. It's going to be crypto. It's going to be tokenization of assets. And when that happens, Mike, there's your building of the new financial system. Think of it that way. Let me, and, and again, that comes out of the private sector, though, what you're saying there. It's not going oh, to be government driven. Yeah. Well, that's, well, let me just ask a simple question. Like, or I'll just reflect on my own feelings. I have absolutely no confidence that the people who brought us into this mess, I'm talking the the fiscal policies that begat the monetary policies, but the fiscal policy, I think they're clueless. I look at our productivity numbers, you know, uh, I look at our capital investment per worker, all of those things. uh, I'm really with you on the private sector will have to have to lead this out. Have to the only way out is growth. The least painless way, you know, least painful way is growth. And uh, but I don't have confidence in the in the people in politics to either even at the basic level understand them, let alone implement. I mean, for example, the federal government. And I don't want to be overly political here, but two fifteen they come in power. I'm still looking for the first productivity enhancement proper policy. You know, I'm still looking at policies uh, where, where's your policy to really encourage innovation not more government handouts uh, you know that that is not a long-term solution so i'm just wondering what your take on that is sure so so i became very unpopular up here in canada a while back when i said get out of canada mm-hmm. because if you're sitting there thinking about what you just said and, and the facts you just laid on the table right and then you sit there and go well we're going to go through something like a 1990s and an innovation boost to grow our way out of it Canada has none of that. Okay, yeah. we have nothing. We had you what Shopify, right? And in the nineties, we had something, right? We had Bell Canada, we had Nortel, we had JDS Uniface. So first off, it's get out of Canada, and we and and we know from data that that the average Canadian has fifty percent or fifty two percent of their assets in their RSP in in Canada, where you know it should only be about three percent. Right. Yeah. So so that's the first thing. Right. And then I think you've touched on and I think but there are. And, and so that's first. So let's go talk politics and I'll and I'll sit there and say politics. We're going to I'm going to focus on the Ottawa, but we could apply it to the provincial level as well and the local level. But let's just focus on Ottawa because it's easier. Right. The Liberal Party that exists today, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party is not the Liberal Party of his father. And 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 one of the things that his father did was he basically went on the record. I put it on my Twitter feed. He went on the record in 1979, said, we are going to stay in the center. And what the Liberal Party of this country did is they basically with the NDP, they went extremely left. And I think and I think to the to the surprise of many of the establishment within the Liberal Party. And we could also apply that 
to the Conservative Party, right? I mean, so let me be clear. I grew up in Ontario, right? I'm a small C conservative. Like uh, Bill Davis was was my type of a conservative. Like I'm not an I'm not a far right conservative guy. Mm-hmm. Be that what it may. So what we have is we've got these plural polarizations, right? And what will be interesting to see is who will go back and take the center. Because that party that takes the center will run for the next decade, I think. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I am not, I am not saying it's to, I'm not, let's leave the party out of it. Yes. But what we're going to start to see within the United States, within Canada, let's look at New Zealand, the far left progressive party lost. We can go through Europe, the far left Progressive policies are losing election after election. So we're going to move back to the center. And it just a it's just a matter of time of how that happens. Right. Does it happen internally within the Liberal Party before the election? Does it happen after? Um, and so I I I know I it, there's a lot of consternation, but I'm still very bullish for the run because um, into the end of the decade, because Mike, if every, everything you say is correct and we need to get that productivity growth going, you know, necessity is the mother of all inventions. And we will be, the banks will force be forced to absorb blockchain because they need the product line, right? Everything's going to happen. AI. So I am much more constructive. And but but I want to I want to amplify with what you say. I mean, you real. I wonder what Pierre Trudeau would say today if he was alive, seeing how his son has moved his party to the extreme left, because that's not what politics was up here, you know, in the Mm -hmm. 80s and in the 90s. So, yes, we've gone too far. But let me ask last thing. And we talked about this before. The demographics have suggested that this should have happened, right? And so the real question is going to be, and and I think it's happening, is look, uh, the Bank of Canada raised rates, okay? Let's argue about whether or not the carbon tax is acceptable or not, right, Mike? And you and I, we voted, we're a democracy. And let's just say, you know, guess what? we decided as a community to put the carbon tax in fine but guess what why not do it in a less inflationary way why are you doing it right now and then you sit there and go well because uh, you know the government says we don't care about monetary policy or inflation well they do now and you know why they do now is because the cohort of individuals that basically voted them in has a variable rate mortgages and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do And this is exactly what happened to the baby boomers in the 60s when they forced their social programs down on us. Guns and butter, the great society. And if you know what people miss is that the foundation for that inflationary spike that happened in the 70s. Yes, it was going off the gold standard. Yes, it was the oil shocks. But it was the progressive policies that were forced on society by the baby boomers in the 1960s that was taken up by the Kennedys and Lyndon Johnson, 
we're doing the same thing. So what happens? The boomers get older. They got to buy a house. It's 16% mortgages. And guess what happens? They temper their social views a little bit, don't they? And you and if you look at the polls with Trudeau and what's happening with the liberal parties, I think they're really surprised at how quickly they have abandoned, you know, climate change and ESG for being able to have a house. I think it's really interesting, but it's not it's not unique. I'll put it that way. Well, the other thing is, is, is very understandable. I mean, that's that's been a theme of ours on Money Talks that it actually, by the way, wasn't inflation. It was the cost of living. And I make a distinction. Like if you've doubled the price of my groceries, I don't care if it doesn't rise further after that. I can't buy the groceries anyways. And I think that's a mistake uh, when I look at the general analytical approach from economists. No, no, no. It's not inflation. It's I can't afford that. And now, so what if it's only jumping another 2% instead of 8 I can't afford it. But the other thing I just want to emphasize, and I could go on all day with you, I love hearing what you got to say, is I agree completely with what you're saying. I think it's the private sector's turn, and they're going to come out. My worry is how much pain has to be experienced, because we got people losing their houses now. You know, that's, I, you know, that's a very painful thing. We've got others who literally are wondering, how do you make ends meet at the most basic level, like food, like letter? And I, so I believe that change will come. I believe we'll have to look at the economy. It'll have to be prioritized. I just hope there's not a heck of a lot more pain before that recognition comes to the general public and then the politicians after that. Sure. And I think if they hit the perfect golf shot, Right. And if you hear what they're talking about. Right. So what's different about now from from the World War Two is they had the level of debt that we had today, but they kept interest rates pegged. They couldn't basically do anything with interest rates until 51. Right. So so what happened is you don't have the interest payments on debt. Right. So what does that mean? Well, well, interest payment on, on the federal debt in the United States is going to cross a trillion dollars, which is going to be more than the appropriations for the military. All right. So so we're going to have austerity. That's why I think economic growth is going to 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 to, to slow more. I mean, the, the point about going back to secular stagnation and deflation were based on digitization, demographics, debt to GDP and globalization. That's not argued about in the in the in the power corridors of the economy where people argue is that we're going to it's not going to be as bad as we thought because of the fact that they were going to do what they did after world war ii and basically come out with the marshall plan and eisenhower did the big infrastructure plan for the interstate highways in the united states right okay well because we had fiscal policy run wild because of the pandemics guess what Mr. Biden and Mr. Trudeau's policies are basically put in a penalty box for, I don't, let's say two, three years, right? Austerity is going to come there. We're going to be forced to have that happen. And so if that is the case, then what is, what is the best case scenario if you're sitting there as a central banker? The best case scenario would be to get it back, get interest rates down to two to two and a half percent overnight. Let's say two and a half to three percent. Let's just argue that. And then let's sit there. And then Mike, if you can't afford your house, with the Bank of Canada overnight rate at two and a half percent to three percent, and you're on a variable rate mortgage, then I'm sorry, Mike, you don't deserve to have the house. Mm-hmm. If you have a business that can't basically run at two and a half to three percent overnight rates, then I'm sorry. Okay. So when you hear them say interest rates are higher for longer and you listen to them carefully, what they're talking about is they don't want to go back to the zero bound. Yeah. Right. It's not clear that that's going to be the case, though. Right. So, 
I would suggest to you that we're going to get back down to two to two and a half percent, three percent. Let's just say three to keep everybody happy, three percent. And it's going to happen ha- faster than you think, because I, I, I'm expecting a growth scare. And this is exactly what happened after World War II, right? What happened was you had the growth spare and everybody thought that we were going to go back to, de- to, the, to the 30s, right? We're going to go back to the 30s and we're going to go back to deflation. That risk sits there. And so I would suggest, so if that is the case, then what do you want to do, right? Well, like we've been talking about since I've known you, digital assets, right? Every Any company, if you're in equities, any company that is not becoming a technology company or isn't a technology company, you should not consider. Because the biggest theme in our lifetime on a private sector basis is going to be the move from the analog world to the digital world, which you and I have been talking about forever. That's our saving grace. That's our saving grace. And then when we get to 26 to 27, then we're going to have to figure out if 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 our real concern is because look, Mike, if they don't change their ways, then Jamie Dimon, the head of of of, of J.P. Morgan, has come out. We're going to have ten percent overnight rates. We're going back to the Volcker area, like we are going back there, mm-hmm. and there weren't. So either, and 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 so what I hear is when you look at the 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 could at least in the. The, the the establishment folks on the left and the right in this country and in the United States, they are starting to voice their concerns about the extreme polar policies. I'm trying to be agnostic here, but I'm trying to say we need to move back to the center. We need fiscal responsibility. And in that type of environment, growth is going to be slower than you think. We're going back to low inflation or deflation and low interest rates. How long that lasts? I think it's going to last for a couple of years. Um, It's going to be tougher in Canada than the United States. So I would get out of the United Canada and into the United States. And I would look for areas that are evolving and companies that are about and that's not to say that we talked about commodities before that's not to say that commodities are left by the wayside mm-hmm. right it, it it means you know exxon mobil is a fantastic technology company slumberger there are energy and commodity companies and mining companies that are embracing technology that's a secular theme that's positive right so there's a lot of positives a lot of positive that we can hang our hat on well, as I say, I'm really looking forward to this because you're going to be at the World Outlook Conference February 2nd and 3rd. Uh, there's there's just a ton to talk about. I mean, these are unusual times. I use cliches like historic change, but we've seen it. We're living it right now. And uh, I know that that's what you spend your 24-7 thinking about on behalf of Wellington, uh, you know, all this, the private wealth, all of that. And I appreciate very much you share your expertise with us, but I'll be looking forward to seeing you February 2nd and 3rd at the World Outlook Conference. Thanks for having me, Mike. Terrific stuff. Time now for the quote of the week. Everything surrounding the situation going on in uh, Israel with Hamas, with Gaza, etc., it's emotional. It's, it's got people phenomenally upset. And no wonder, nobody likes war. And nobody can stand the images that we're seeing. And that's what I think has been behind the call for ceasefire. 
at least in the majority of cases. And we see the poll results showing that a lot of Canadians, the majority of Canadians, would like to see a ceasefire. But that brings me to my quote of the week by Walter Russell Mead. He's a foreign affairs professor, uh, and also he's a Wall Street Journal columnist, author of numerous books. In quotes, let's travel back to July 7th, 1944. And the Allied soldiers have just landed on the Normandy beaches and are just beginning to expand their foothold. And now we have some very good-natured people saying, well, let's have a ceasefire. The casualties on Normandy are terrible. Civilian casualties, the French civilians, the cities like Cherbourg, right in the path of the war. Well, that ceasefire would have allowed the Germans the time they needed to assemble the forces that could throw the Allies back into the sea. And so a call for a ceasefire that sounds so humanitarian so even-handed, was actually an attempt to hand the victory to one party. Now, I'm not saying, I'll never say, that everyone who calls for a ceasefire today is consciously trying to help Hamas. No, we should never, though, underestimate the combination of fuddled goodwill and lack of historical knowledge can create in the way of confusion. There's much more of that than real ill will. Nevertheless, it remains the fact that a ceasefire at this time allows Hamas to continue to prepare, it does nothing for the release of hostages, does nothing really to alleviate the suffering of the people in Gaza. The war will resume more bitter than ever. It's a real mistake. End of quote. Well, I hope that's something to at least think about there. And I'm with him. People are well-meaning, but they might want to think it through a little bit further. In the meantime, this is the Remembrance Day weekend, and we should remember all of those who've sacrificed for our freedoms. You know, one of the things I'm always on about is how important it is, especially in an economy like this. And I'm going to be asking Brad Newell about that king of floors, you know him as, but many other hats he's got on. But about the importance of success of our business community, importance of strength, uh, uh, you know, in our economy. I continue to ask the question, you know, who benefits when the economy's weak? Who benefit if a business is weak? And that's what I'm sort of sensing out there right now. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Brad Newell. Brad, you're here because you've grown a successful business. I know you've been involved as an entrepreneur for years, but you started King of Floors off the top of my head. What what is it like 25 years ago? And then expansion, expansion, expansion. <laughs> and uh, so I, I want to pat you on the back for that alone. But I've got something else I'm going to ask you about in a few minutes. Hey, Michael, love your show. I listened to every episode. You kind of remind me of my dad. You're just meat and potatoes. And the, the cool thing is you always talk about, you know, debt, which my dad's, he drilled into my little brother and I when we were 12 and 14. Um, so my dad came home when I was 14, 13, I think. And he says, I'm going to lose my job. Uh, this is 40 years, 42 years ago. Um, you guys want to move to Edmonton or do you want to start up a Windsor plywood store? So he says, no, 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 let's do a Windsor Plywood store. So we, we, we got a franchise in Surrey and great company, Randy Jones that started it. Great guy, just a positive person. And, uh, we were, and my, we started this store and uh, we did really well. And my mom and dad worked their tail off, like their tail off. My little brother and I, I think I had 9,000 saved and Paul had two and dad came to us and he needed that. We gave him that, but my mom and dad really, really worked hard for, you know, many years. And then uh, in 99, we became a king of floors. Yeah. And we could see flooring was, we, yeah, we could see flooring was a great place to be. And um, we've done really well at it, actually. 
Well, you have, and, and, you know, you've expanded that kind of thing. And I, and I hate this sort of Barbara Walters questions, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's just, uh, but can you just, when you look at that, can you identify one or two, three reasons why you think you've been successful? It's always easy after the fact, people go, well, it's, uh, you know, successful, but man, it's not easy for anybody out there. And to, and to do a startup, make a go of that alone, let's just stop there, but then to expand it, obviously, to continue to do good business. Yeah, you know, back then it was a lot easier with today's economy and the way things are and the costs and, and all the things you got to go through it. I, you know, there's a lot of young guys that are leaving this country right now that are go getters and it's sad. And hopefully we can get that back one day. But for us back then, it was, you know, you could borrow money pretty easy. We didn't borrow much. Uh, we were very aggressive on advertising. Yep. Uh, my little brother, Paul, he's not with us anymore, but he was the best buyer on the planet and we scoured the earth for product. In fact, he went to China 131 times in his life, and uh, he was an amazing guy with a huge heart. And um, we always try to treat the customer fair, too. We don't ever, you know, you know, we, we buy things at a good deal. We make sure the customer got a good deal, too. And, and we loved it. It was, it was in our blood. We, 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 we grew our company to 17 stores. Uh, we have one now. And uh, just just because of everything just because we wanted to kind of slow down a bit in life. We had 17 stores. We had them all through BC, Alberta. We had a couple in Ontario. We had one in Great Falls, Montana. And uh, we had an idea of growing this thing massive. And then, uh, you know, like a lot of stress, you know, a lot of stress in business. And um, so so we kind of put the brakes on all that. Actually, we bought a golf course in 07 too, Kings Links. And that, 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 was, that was a lot of, that's a lot of fun. We still own that today. Uh, let me, um, you know, let, you know, you obviously are also tied to the real estate business, you know, the big real estate boom, especially, you know, when your original stuff is out in, you know, greater Vancouver area, one of the booming areas. I want to ask, what do you think of it now? I mean, we know it boomed. That's not a shock to anybody. Obviously, uh, that was a great thing for you as new construction comes on, people floor, they renovate, all of those things. But you're on the ground there. I, Share with me just what you're hearing, seeing, et cetera, about the business right now. I mean, we've got Bank of Canada saying, hey, recession around the corner, certainly a slowdown. Can you verify that? Is it better, worse, what? Okay, so on the on the property side of it, you know, next July, we may have to borrow money for taxes. We've never had to do that, ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, – and they keep jacking their prices. The taxes are going to go higher next year. You know, some of the, some of the stuff we have is like tripled in like four years. Like where, which money tree does that money come from? So there's that aspect of it. But then the other thing is like on sales right now, we are really slow. We've never been this slow and we are directly tied in. We're like a bellwether of the economy. We're directly tied in with housing. And, and our customer is the, the guy that's buying a new house and doing a reno. We get the odd bill there, but mostly renos. And it's like they turn the tap off right now. Now I think it'll improve in the, as soon as they start. The interest rate uh, drawdown, hopefully next spring. I'm sure they will a little bit. I think that's going to help us because people will be selling houses more. But right now, there's not many houses selling. I got a couple of friends trying to sell houses right now, and you know as well as I do, there's there's no sales. So hopefully that picks up in the spring. But I think this winter could be really tough. I mean, our sales are you know are way down, but we're, we're staying positive. We're fighters. We do a ton of advertising and. We'll get through this, but we've never seen this before, Michael. We've never, ever seen this in 40 years in business. 
my dad and I were talking about my dad's 85 and uh, he's still involved in the company. He plays golf every day and uh, or not every day. You probably get mad when I say that, but uh, he's, he's got his hand on the pulse too. So. Well, it's such an important message though. And there's two things that I'm hearing in there. One is, yeah, uh, the sharp rise in interest rates, the unprecedented rise in interest rates. Well, it's now filtering through the economy. I think people are afraid, uh, you know, like, what is it, 55, 60% of people haven't renewed their mortgages yet. So I think they sit there going, oh, my gosh, you know, what's coming up, If let alone if you have other loans. Uh, I think the geopolitical situation isn't positive in terms of just the psychology of people, you know. And as you say, people are pulling in their horns. But the other side that is not positive to hear is governments seem oblivious to it. They continue to put up roadblocks. And as you say, this is a tough cash flow kind of time for, for tons of businesses. Look at the numbers. And yet we don't need to be throwing more money at government at this point. And as I say, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth that they seem oblivious to me to what it's really like to be down there and running a business. 100%. You know, another thing too, I think Toronto and Vancouver are the real tough spots because of the high cost of living. I don't think it's as bad as maybe in Calgary, Edmonton, even like Newfoundland. I got people, friends of mine that want to, like, what should I do? I want to buy a house, go to Newfoundland, they're 500 grand right on the yeah. water. I was there. It's a beautiful people, you know. So I think different parts of Canada, it's not quite as bad. Uh, but everybody's worried about, their, you know, making sure they've got, uh, uh, you know, a job right now, too. That's the other thing. Yeah. You know, the Canadian Tire just laid off some people. And I, I heard I heard the big shipping line, Maersk uh, just laid off 10,000. And maybe another hundred thousand behind it. So, wow. I mean, that's that's a sign, you know, um, a sign. Of, but we are King of Fours is like a bellwether of the economy. That's what I've always said to people, and I've never seen this. I've never ever seen this. Let Let me uh, take another turn just quickly, though. You mentioned you own King's Links. Have you noticed? I mean, I would have thought golf might have been one of the few places that didn't get decimated by the by COVID, for example, just because people were allowed to be outdoors and desperate to be outdoors. Yeah, golf, golf is busy. COVID made it, you know, a lot of people took it up and, um, yeah, golf's busy. I, I think golf slowed down maybe a bit, maybe not. I mean, a lot of like, you know, half the population or, you know, maybe two thirds of the population's hurting and there's a third that are not. They don't really even care yeah. about, you know, the downfall. I, I think that's a very I good. Sorry, excuse me. I think that's a very good observation, by the way. I mean, one of the things I've been outlining is the have and have nots, the the so-called uh, laptop class during, uh, you know, during COVID. I think people who listen to the show realize it drove me nuts when they kept saying we're all in this together. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm lucky. I've got a way better life than a lot of people sitting in downtown Toronto, downtown Vancouver, you name it. One bedroom, two kids, no school, whatever it was. You know, I said, I, I don't pretend for one second I felt that, but I worry about it continually. I mean, on Money Talks, we've been very concerned about the rising cost of living, you know, and who does that impact the most? And your point is, unfortunately, a lot of the decision makers are in that top third that aren't getting affected, whatever that percentage is. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's an extremely difficult time with that. But it's kind of interesting also. Let me just uh, change gears for a sec with you, Brad, because this is one of the things that I was uh, impressed with and fascinated with. You parlayed your success and said, what else can I do? Where else can I, can I help? And you created a, a charity called Heads Up Guys. And you can find them. And let me just make sure because I'll say it 53 times. HeadsUpGuys.org. I, I mean, first of all, more than good for you, 
more than good for you and your team and your family for doing this. Tell me quickly about that, though. Like, what are you targeting there? Sure. Well, before we get into that, we're, our family's huge supporters of postpartum society, too. We believe that's very important. And we've, uh, for personal reasons, too. And uh, we really believe in the postpartum society. Uh, it's a really, if anybody's looking at donating, great organization and the money all goes to the, there's no big expenses. That's the one thing. When we look at charities, our family over the years, I always look at the expenses. I want to know where the money's going. Yep. That, that's the key because you, it's a big black hole, some of these things. So back in 2015, um, we had, we had something tough in our, fa- in our family happen. And, uh, so I got a hold of this Dr. John Agrajanchuk. He's going to laugh. I got his name wrong, but he's, he's, he's a founder of Heads Up Guys. And we met with him. Um, was, I think it was November or December of 15. And, 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 and it was a really good idea. And, uh, but they didn't have much money. And I knew that and, and I liked it. And we met a few times and I really liked this guy. Like he's just a good, good guy. He's the best psychologist on the planet to help men. He really is. He's such a good speaker. I mean, he, when he speaks, people listen. Like I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've heard him speak at functions and it's amazing. So anyways, so we, 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 I says, listen, I want to get involved. So we got involved a little bit. And then I, re- and then my family, we really, really love this thing. Right. So, so then, then I said, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to really get involved. And since then I'm kind of, I'm the snapper. Okay. So I never founded it, but I'm the snapper. And, uh, and then Josh, it runs the website. He's the, he's the receiver and John's the quarterback. And I, so what I've been able to do is been able to get us 15 to $20 million in free advertising. Wow. Uh, by just working hard, our families put a lot of money into this. I've, I've helped raise a ton of money. And the nice thing is the money is going right to helping men. Like there's the burn rate in, on this thing is so low. Um, it's not even funny. And UBC has been really good to us. They help, they help, they, they help with the accounting. They give us a free office and, and uh, actually Santa Ano before he left was part of heads up. He did a whole bunch of different, uh, uh, podcasts with us and, and, and videos. Just a good guy because Santa struggled himself terribly over the years. In fact, he was in dark, dark place twice when he was a young guy. So he was really behind it. But like, I'm just going to read something here about heads up. Take a, I got Dr. John to write this. So it's done. I usually talk from the heart, but I thought it'd be better if I got it from Dr. John. So depression being a leading cause of disability worldwide. Untreated depression leads to a wide, wide range of negative outcomes, such as broken relationships, substance abuse, and worse. We know that men can struggle with reaching out for a hand when they need it and often don't engage with available services. We need to develop better services for men so that they can engage with help when they need it to become better husbands, better dads, better friends, and the best versions of themselves. There's a worldwide program called Heads Up Guys out of UBC for men's mental health. It's one of the few such resources in the world. And I'll go on to say there's hardly any. Like, I've searched this. This is my whole life. I, I do this every day. Since they, launched, since they launched their program in 15, they've had more than 5 million men come to the site. We get over 60,000 guys every month to the site. This is a great, I'm going to start talking just from my heart. This is a great, great site for women, too, to find out why their guy's having a, a tough time. We've, we have a self-check on there. We've had 500,000 men, some women do it, too, that uh, that have done the self-check to see how they're doing. It's anonymous. Every guy should do it. Um, 
And why are we heads up guys, just heads up guys? Because there's not much out there for us guys. And we feel weak, you know, like we, we feel weak and we're the only ones struggling. When No, most of us guys are, especially these days. Uh, we've had we've had over 500 men, or sorry, we, we've had over 500,000 men do that self-check. But we get 200 men, 200 people a night that punch into, into the search terms, terms like, should I jump off a bridge? Painless mm-hmm. death. We get 200 people a day come to this site. So, th- I mean, this is my whole life. Um, I'm passionate about it. This is my purpose. Us guys need purpose. That's the two things that bother. So, Dr. John, they've done a whole bunch of studies, you know, uh, from the data that we get. The two things that bother us guys the most, lack of purpose and loneliness. Those are the two things that bother us guys. And then, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just, it's it's the times too. Like it's the times, and and COVID didn't help this. I mean, COVID made this way worse. Guys hiding in their basements. We need a tribe. We need to get outside and be with people. I don't really think working at home is a great thing. Maybe two days a week. I think you got to be around people and talk. That's what we're supposed to do. And the other one more thing, and then, and then I'm done. Is uh, we've, uh, this is really neat. We just started some new some new stuff. I just found on the website. We got here a whole bunch of different self guided courses for men. One on anger. One on negative thoughts and one on mindfulness. So this is all brand new. So I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, like, I'll take a look at it. And these are tests that you can do. I'm going to take a look at this today. I just found this out. These are, so we're building a ton of these self care tool, toolkits. We just started doing this. So our family is so happy to be with this involved. And this is, this is, this is what we want to do, you know, to our last breath. So I really appreciate you having me on your show today. Well, I can tell you this, uh, Brad. I can't, as I said, right up the front, when I first heard about it and knew the work that you had done to push this forward, I couldn't be more impressed, but more grateful also. I mean, as you say, very few resources. It's not a competition, but there's very few resources. And I love that you added that, that this is something also for women to check out at what uh, what's up, guys. Dot org. Why? Because maybe their spouse or their significant other is suffering at that time. I mean, mental health is moving slowly toward more of a forefront, but desperately needed. It was needed during, that was one of my big criticisms. I'm not put, please, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it was a huge criticism of mine of the lockdown approach for COVID because they completely ignored the fallout in this way. I mean, talk about snowballing people who've got challenges in all of these directions that you're alluding to. Uh, but I would really encourage, I was, uh, as I say, really encourage people to take advantage, uh, even just to understand what's going on with uh, your neighbor, maybe, or your friends, et cetera. Headsupguys.org, easy to do. But uh, Brad, I'm going to finish with this also. Um, when I reached out last year, uh, last March, for Special Olympics, I, I just got to say, unsolicited, Brad came forward and said, you know, we'd like to help. And uh, I, I can't tell you how appreciative that was, Brad. You know how tough it is out there, you know. And, uh, you know, you're talking about inflation. All of the costs for all the programs, which are free for Special Olympics, have skyrocketed, you know, whether it's transporting people, whether it's feeding people, whether it's accommodation. So uh, much appreciated. But uh, a big salute to you and your family. And, uh Let's, uh, you're going to be the guy who's going to turn around this economy for us. <laughs> Great to have you on, Brad. Nice to have a visit. Yeah. Hey, one, one more thing, guys. That's Special Olympics is, is dear to our heart, too. Uh, and my good friend, Neil Bidwell, he moved to the island now, but we used to, he used to coach the, uh, Special Olympics team out of our golf course. And oh, I used to go play with all the guys. It was a ton of fun. I used to go play with all the guys. I'd go down there and we'd, 
we had so much fun. So uh, thanks, for, thanks. For, it's very important. Thank you. Appreciate it. Brad Newell, of course, you know him as King of Floors, many other things, uh, the King's Links out into Watson for golf, but other things too. But I want to bring to your attention headsupguys.org, headsupguys.org. I want to bring in Ozzy Jurek right now. There's so much to talk about, especially on this Remembrance Day. I mean, this is the celebration of our freedoms. Well, one of the aspects that's been bothering me, bothering me in two ways, is one that nobody talks about it and bothering me that, in fact, it should be talked about, and that is the consistent attack on people's private property rights. And I want to get to that in a second. But first, Ozzy, you know what's interesting about the whole housing debate, and it's one that concerns all of us because whether you own a house or not or you aspire to own a house, but, of course, then that translates into rental problems. We talk a ton about this. But one thing that still, I think, when I review the mainstream media that gets overlooked is how the role that governments played in juicing up housing prices for, from every level, whether it's just adding on another you know, expense or a, a levy, a tax, that kind of thing, or their monetary policy has produced this. Yeah, Mike, it's, it's relentless. You know, in 1963, our average price in Vancouver was 13500 By 1998, in that 35-year period, it went to 278000 I wrote a book, I called it Forget About Location, Location. You know, look at what the government is printing. Milton Friedman says inflation is primarily a monetary phenomenon. I said if we keep on printing like this by 2020, by 2032, every house in Vancouver is going to be worth $5 million. Well, Mike... It's now 2.3 million, and we had over 4 million on the west side. So guess what? Now they're coming to look at us as homeowners. We are the bad people. We are now have a target on our back because we have any kind of assets left. Well, what worries me is that, uh, you know, this has to do with private property rights. And as I said just a moment ago, I'm not losing it, but I can't believe how often that's not mentioned. And I'm going to throw some stuff at you, Ozzy, here in no particular order, but the one that jumped out to me was Airbnb. Now, I know it's popular to restrict Airbnbs, but the bottom line is we've got a government saying this is what you can do with property that you bought with after-tax dollars that you pay consistently into more taxes, and somehow we're going to legislate what you can do with it without grandfathering the clause. Uh, yeah, there's lots to talk about, but the point I'm emphasizing is where does private property rights you know, sort of end and the government's jurisdiction over what you own begins? Well, particular since it just sort of hit you over the head with it, because, I mean, I bought a house. I am licensed. I am a legal uh, operator. I have invested considerable amounts of money in the idea. And now all of a sudden, I, if I rent it under 30, days, 30 nights, it's forbidden. And yeah. the worst thing is that what this does is it removes uh, even the grandfathered rights and removes the protection under legal conforming. I mean, Mike, that's ending 60 years of jurisprudence on the subject. Yeah, and again, why isn't that front and center of the, uh, of the discussion? And plus, you know, uh, as usual, I'm not surprised, but the discussion needs to be informed by facts. And I'll give you a quick example, Ozzy, because you wrote about it in ozbuzz.ca. And that is, you know, there is a common narrative out there that, you know, you have Airbnbs, that pushes up rents. Well, the data doesn't support that at this point. Well, even the Conference Board of Canada had a study, a lengthy study from 2016 to 2022. And they found out that while rents increased by over 30% in all the neighborhoods that they looked at, Airbnb was responsible for less than 1% of that. I mean, less than 1%. 
In fact, though, the regulations restricting short-term rentals to a host principal residence haven't led to lower rents at all in those areas that were implemented, like Vancouver. We have had this in law. It hasn't decreased our rent. It has actually increased more than everywhere, everywhere else. So it, it's mind-boggling. It forces the owner to either sell or leave it empty and then pay speculation tax, of course, or long-term rent, which wasn't the plan at all. Uh, I'm going to go to another aspect there because my point is it's been relentless. Uh, you know, there's just several examples of this. So let me give another one here that, uh, you know, it's out in British Columbia. But believe me, every province is looking at this at this point. And that is, you know, all of a sudden you can double or triple or whatever, you know, add a, the, the density to a single family neighborhood. You can go as much, many as six, uh, you know, properties or, or six residences rather on the property. Well, you've just changed. The incredible, you know, profoundly changed the nature of a single family uh, neighborhood. And again, it's it's the senior government, the provincial government in this case, just, you know, at times will be overruling uh, municipal governments. But I mean, man, they just ch- that's a real game changer. Well, and, 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 and you pointed it out. I mean, the government, BC government says we are the boss and, and many yeah. municipalities may not realize that it doesn't matter what your bylaws is. It doesn't doesn't matter what it, you know. If you're a municipality over 5,000 people, thou shalt build up to three units in properties 280 square meters or less, or up to six if you're close to transit. Now, Mike, what it does is, and maybe I'm not even going to go into the merits of it, but it will change the flavor of our neighborhoods. Imagine you bought a nice house for your family, you have your kids, you want to have a cul-de-sac, and you buy it and you spend the incredible amounts that we're spending in our own houses, then your neighbor rips down the house, puts up a sixplex. Yeah. A totally different kind of environment. A totally imagine sixplex on a on a fifty foot lot or and then there's a nice little single family home and then a fourplex and it changes the very fabric of what I mean, we have been brought up to believe you buy a house, you pay it off over twenty five years, you have your retirement guaranteed and you live in a nice neighborhood. This is changing everything. And, and and sorry, I'm going to the other side of this is, you know, I've, I've been saying for years on Money Talks and, and speeches, et cetera, look, the, one of the characteristics of Canada now is governments are desperate for money. And the desperation, well, so where is the money? The money's in real estate. The money's in pensions. Those are the two big areas where people have money. Well, look at the list of ways they've gone after this industry. And as you, uh, you know, just piggybacking on what you said a moment ago, that they've made developers the bad guy, homeowners the bad guy. And then and further to that, though, they just see it as a cash cow and yet then turn around and say, hey, guess what? We care about affordable housing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny if it wasn't if it wasn't yes. making you cry. Now, I should say part of that legislation is a possible benefit because the existing zoning um, in the official community plan would override. Say, if I have a development for fifty-story building, I now have to go to lots of uh, side-by-side rezoning yes. and spot rezoning, public here and so on. That's been done away with, so that there is something to be said on behalf of the developer. You might save some some six months. But other than that, it's a graph. But what about the in- increased fees? Because this one has blown me away, uh, again, because it's clear that it's going to add a ton of money to a single-family uh, single home lot, a uh, ton of money if it's multi. You know, and again, uh, it's just so clear that this whole song and dance about affordable housing gets blown out when governments want more money. Well, you and I have been talking for months about yep. the, the whole idea about rental 
uh, units you want to build them and then give them a big uh, tax on it, the GST. So the federal government listened to Michael Campbell and eliminate the GST on the rental construction. Well, following that, sorry not to be outdone, Vancouver uh, <laughs> raised the DCC fees by tripling the water fee, quadrupling the liquid waste fee, a creation of a new development cost charge for parks, which adds between 18000 and 25000 every single family lot and well over $15,000 on every condo. <laughs> You know, so if even the federal government couldn't swallow that and said, hey, we're not going to give you any money if you if you make the effect that the the rental subsidy has been wiped out. Oh, and, a lot of it. Well, and I want to just repeat those numbers. This is just one aspect of it. But the increased fees of what we're talking about specifically, it's eleven to 14000 for every new apartment unit and eighteen to 24000 for a single family lot. This is not small potatoes. And I mean, again, we could go out to Toronto if we want and look at what they've done there. Well, Toronto, it just blows you there. Now the fees are 47% higher. Now, Mike, we're talking about increase of fees. There's existing fees. Like Toronto, the existing fee is 93900 it's now going to 137,000, up 43,000 percent. You could almost be thankful to be in Vancouver not to have these kind of fees increases. Well, and, and again, back to that main point, uh, which is, you know, where is government going to get money? Well, they look at real estate. They look at, uh, you know, our pensions. And again, I, I'm st- we're sticking to obviously to real estate today. But that's not all. The other thing that you did on Ozbuzz.ca, going back a bit, you pointed it out. I think is important. We've been talking about the, the scare about somehow eliminating the primary residence, you know, tax-free area. And why did we say it? Because uh, the, the government commissioned three different studies on it. But they've already started in a way when they start talking about and changing capital gains exemptions or, you know, at what point can you buy a home, but if you sell it within a year, uh, you don't get capital gains, you, you, let alone any tax-free. No, you pay it as if, if it's income. Yeah, I mean, you, you hired Professor Kershaw from UBC with a big grant, and he came up originally with a 1% wealth tax over every house over a million. That was in January 22. It went over like a lead balloon. But they also invited Mr. Kershaw to a think tank, Mr. Trudeau, just two months ago, and quietly and without any kind of big, big fanfare, they put in the right to have a free capital gain tax on your house. They took it away if you're selling it within the first year. Now, the thing is, you say, well, that's really if you sell it in the first year. But not only is it not going to be a capital gain, it's now con- considered to be income. You know how easy it would be now to make it two years and then three years and four years? And there, you no longer have the exemption. And, and uh, that's so important, the point you're making, that it comes incrementally and then all of a sudden, you know, presto, you've been, you know, hit between the eyes with a baseball bat. But I think, you know, as I say, I, I look at this weekend, Ozzy, as a celebration of the men and women who fought for our freedoms, who fought for things like private property rights. And I watch them being eroded without even a discussion. That's what drives me nuts. I don't care if people agree with me or not. I don't have any, you know, but I want it discussed. I want people to be wide awake and aware. And we have not been, when it comes to affordable housing, we have not called out politicians for the relentless stream of income they're taking from, you know, uh, developers or homeowners or what have you. That should be front and center. But in this case, we're now we're seeing these kind of erosions, like the one you just mentioned. Hey, yeah, it used to be you got, uh, if you lived in the house, you know, primary residence, tax-free exemption. Oh, now, not if you sell within a year. And as you say, I'm thinking the important point is 
you think there'd be an outcry if you said, well, it was a year, it's now a year and a half, and now two, it's now three. We've got to be uh, on at least alert. You know, there should be a warning, flashing warning sign about what's going on. No question about it. You know, Mike, Jean-Baptiste Colbert said, the art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest amount of feathers with the least amount of hissing. I think we have to do some more hissing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. As I say, so much good stuff on ozbuzz.ca, and I encourage you to go there, including the free newsletter. All you have to do is sign up and tell them where to send it. Uh, so take advantage of that. So much happening within our real estate markets. That's why I'm pleased to have Ozzy join me every week on Money Talks. Ozzy, happy Remembrance Day weekend. It's one to celebrate the sacrifices of our armed forces. Absolutely. Let's remember. I'm going to go straight to the trading desk now and bring in Victor Adair, where you can find him at victoradair.ca. Vic, uh, I want to just start with the stock market because we've been chronicling the decline for, what was it, three months? So maybe I shouldn't be surprised there was such a power rally coming out of that because there'd be short covering, as an example, you know. And uh, so what's your take on that? I mean, we, it certainly did recover a heck of a lot of the losses. Well, on my blog, I've been writing about what I call a key turn period in the middle of July. And the, the absolute key event that happened in the middle of July, Microsoft announced something about AI and their value of their stock jumped $100 billion in an hour. And that was on the 17th of July. And that was the high for, for Microsoft. We trended lower in the broad indices for the next three months. As interest rates kept going higher and higher, and the market was kind of dismayed by that. And since then, we've had a turnaround, and to come full circle, we've had Microsoft this week race up and make a new all-time high. So it's just been a dramatic uh, down and then back up again in the stock markets, and it, a big part of the move has been ignited by the changes in the credit markets, by interest rate changes. Well, I've got a big... Good put a big check mark by the way by microsoft because it's been featured in the last two world outlook conferences uh you know uh, recommended portfolio we do with keystone financial so it's been a big winner for us and i just want to note that but i want to come to your point here so is it too early to say that the psychology's changed because the bond markets changed and all of a sudden we thought okay after they said you know both powell and uh, tiff macklin said hey we're not raising rates this time they weren't definitive like we're not raising rates anymore but the market took it as that yeah last week was the 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 turning point in the american stock market and certainly the toronto market as well where we've been going down for three consecutive months and the market i think really turned higher and the pivot was that that sense that the central banks were done raising interest rates. Now, the pivot was extra fuel because a lot of market uh, people in the market had been positioned short. They had to scramble. We saw some of the, yeah. the stocks that had been really hit because people thought they were poor quality, you know, bounce aggressively. Then this week. The market, the broad indices were virtually dead in the water after such a dramatic week last week until uh, we get here at the end of the week. The markets took a dip on Thursday. Again, an interest rate related play. But going into the end of the week, we just had a very strong rally. Seasonally, Mike, this is a strong time of the year. The, the stock market usually rallies into the American Thanksgiving and then again into the end of the year. So uh, just to finish off, what are you going to be looking at? 
Well, uh, I, I'm trading stocks. I've been trading bonds. Uh, I've been in the gold market as well. I, the, the market I've totally missed has been the breakdown in energy, but you know, the, you certainly can't catch them all. And uh, I, I'm just uh, amazed here, I guess, at the quick pivots, how fast the, the, the tempo or, or even the, the sentiment is changing in the market. So kind of got to be light on your feet. But uh, I guess the old saying is, you know, you got to go with the flow. Absolutely, though. I mean, that's a, it's an old saying, but one with great value. And especially the other point you're making, I just want to emphasize the speed of which the moves take place. Once they start, you know, presto, it's on. We've been quoting that Hemingway quote for ages now saying, you know, how did you go bankrupt slowly? And then all of a sudden, well, I felt that's how the market's reacting once focus comes on those things. So I'm sure you've got a busy week planned on you to say American Thanksgiving may give you a little bit of a break coming up. In the meantime, uh, all my best on this very important weekend, the Remembrance Day weekend, as we honor everybody who serves our country, has served, and continues to serve our country. And I want to invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I mean, obviously, the events in uh, Israel, uh, Hamas, terrorist attack, all of us has us on edge. It's tapping us in so many different ways. You know, on Thursday, in the aftermath of shots being fired at two Jewish schools in Montreal, we had Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie condemn the shooting, saying, in quotes, this is not who we are as Canadians. Well, given all the things we're seeing throughout the country, the thousands in protest, uh, the firebombing of a synagogue in Quebec, an imam saying Jews should be exterminated, that may be just wishful thinking. And I'm worried that it's the kind of wishful thinking that's brought us to the most popular solution to the conflict is the two-state solution, living in peace side by side. Well, I'm just not sure how you rectify or get that when you start listening to some of the statements of leaders of Hamas. And I'm just going to give you a couple. He said, this is Hamas leader Mahmoud al-Jahar. Annihilation will be the fate not only for the Jews, but also their helpers. How about this? Ghazi Hamad. Hamas Political Bureau. He says, we will repeat the October 7th massacre time and again, one million times if we need to, until we end the occupation. Journalists asked, occupation of Gaza? No, all of Israel. How about Mohammed Deif, leader of the military wing of Hamas? Kill them wherever you find them. Remove this filth from your land and your sacred places. I mean, you're hearing these time and again. You're not hearing anything that sounds conciliatory. So, I know we're getting the idea of that, but for the life of me, I don't understand how anyone could get the impression that the so-called two-state solution would be welcomed by Hamas. And just like on at least, but I could count at least four other instances when Hamas broke the existing ceasefire, why would they safely coexist now with the two sides sitting side by side? Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Just want to remind you, of course, how can you miss it? We've been talking about the World Outlook Conference. Great interview with Jim Thorne, but that kind of a sample of what we're going to get. And as I say, Christmas is coming. we got the early bird special. What a time to book. Hope to see you there. All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button. Uh, it's all over. It's all over our other social media, which I hope you're checking in on. Uh, Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. But I think it's going to be an absolutely fabulous kind of weekend. Uh, and I think James, uh, James Thorne gave us a good hint as to what's to come. So much going on. I hope you join us there. In the meantime, it isn't enough to say a tip of the cap. It isn't enough to give us our deep 
thoughts regarding all the men and women who have protected our way of life in Canada and are still doing so. I hope you have a terrific Remembrance Day weekend.